0: stolen say so go gonna go I am Jenny Doctor and this is episode 7 of stolen From a very young age most of us are taught what it means to steal to take something that does not belong to you. And most of us are taught that it is wrong to steal. But what if you witness someone stealing something that you know does not belong to them? Do you speak up? Do you stand up and call out? In this episode, guest host Peter Downey explores stolen land and what it means when rights are stolen from the first peoples of this land.
1: Thanks, Ginny. This season, our theme has been stolen from Indigenous dreams to harvests to health. In this episode, we explore what is likely the most profound theft, that of land. Paradoxically, it might be the best known issue in Canada, but the least understood. With the regularity of clockwork, it seems, Canada and the provinces and Indigenous communities clash over territory and resources. We've all seen what's been happening in St. Mary's Bay in Nova Scotia between indigenous and non-indigenous fishers. It's ugly. It's upsetting. Let's be clear. The Mi'kmaq fishers have the constitutional right to fish and to maintain what's called a moderate livelihood. That's a phrase that has yet to be defined clearly, and that is a big problem. The violence and tensions of this latest confrontation brought it to the attention in Ottawa, in the House of Commons.
2: There is no place for racism in our country. The appalling violence in Nova Scotia must stop now.
1: It's unacceptable, it is shameful, and it is criminal. From the Prime Minister to the new leader of the official opposition, Aaron O'Toole.
2: Fishers in Nova Scotia, indigenous and non-indigenous, want a moderate livelihood and well-being for their family to be focused on here tonight, Mr. Speaker. So when is the real work actually going to start?
1: To Nikki Ashton, the NDP member from Manitoba. Will the member not agree that the first step to ending racially motivated violence uh, is to call out the racism that's driving it and to defend the indigenous community that is the target of this violence? Justice Murray Sinclair has said that the federal government's response to this confrontation in Nova Scotia has been an abject failure. So where do we go from here? How do we find our way out of this recurring dilemma? I can't think of anyone more qualified or more wise to speak to than John Burroughs. He's Anishinaabe Ojibwe and a professor at the University of Victoria Faculty of Law where he holds the Canada Research Chair in Indigenous Law. He's written that we should always see Canada through clear eyes and celebrate its strengths, but also decry its weaknesses. When we sat down to talk, I asked him to look clearly at Nova Scotia and to talk about what he sees. So I see both of those things. Uh, There's something to decry, which
2: is the fact that we know that the Supreme Court of Canada has recognized that those peoples have a right to fish for uh, purposes of sustaining their lives. And, and the fact that that's not been implemented and um, respected and that there's violence happening around it again uh, 20 years later after the case is a cause for great sadness and, uh, and upset, rage even. Uh, at the same time, there's an opportunity for learning, right? The debate took place uh, around uh, the common in trying to understand the fisheries and its treaty uh, dimensions, the, the news that's being written in many sources is, uh, is is wonderful in being able to bring forward the possibilities for um, creating a new path forward. It's ne- nothing is never just one thing, right? Beware the danger of a single story and both or all of those stories of sadness and possibility
1: are there at this uh, present time. What would you say to the non-indigenous fishers?
2: I really appreciate the desire that you have to feed your family and to be in community and to search for ways going to ensure that that continues through the generations and um, that uh, that motivation for wanting to um, uh, support uh, one another is, is a is a, a good thing. But that can also be hijacked. Our brains can be hacked so we can find ways that our intentions, our motivations can go offside and not only be harmful to the people that we're dealing with, that we think are on the other side as an enemy, they can also be harmful to ourselves. Um, That hacking of our brain or that going down a particular path can lead to anger, can lead to uh, a narrowness of view, can stop us from um, accomplishing the very goal that you're trying to do, which is to see that we're all in this for the long haul, intergenerationally providing for our families and a sense of dignity for ourselves and others. We can lose sight of that uh, if, uh, if we let uh, the dichotomizations and the distinctions uh, get in the way of our, our broader fellow beingness.
1: And what would you say to the uh, Indigenous fishers? I would say
2: that I feel so hurt too by the um, anger that's directed towards you. I feel that personally, based on experiences I've had uh, as an Indigenous person and I've had as a part of my family, I appreciate your resilience and your streaming the videos of what's happening, uh, uh, but also beware uh, that uh, that kind of fighting back could create a future possibility where you become entrenched in a particular way of viewing that and we we lose the dynamism we lose the treaty which is peace friendship and respect right and so to live by the treaty yes to stand up for the points of right that are there but also to see that the points of right are peaceful are respectful um, are about friendship and so how Can we go from the situation where we're being attacked um, to to pull that treaty back to the fore again and see those larger values that our ancestors left with us as being a part of the way we should proceed? And I just know that and this is just just partial points, right? Not
1: complete thoughts at all. (laughs) So was there something inherently wrong with those original agreements, you know, going back hundreds of years? Or has something simply gone off the rails since then?
2: Yeah, so we used to
1: have yearly meetings to resolve any disputes that had arisen over
2: the prior year. And so there was that diplomacy as people came together and read the wampum belts and shared gifts and presents and sat together and ate meals and um, you know, aired what was going well and what was problematic. And that uh, process has been lost through time. Uh, we don't have a way to continually raise these issues with one another, and we don't have a an institutional mechanism that to would process these disputes in a an ongoing and uh and comprehensive way and so people have to go to court or they 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 go on blockades or they you know they they burn things down uh because we've we don't have the interim steps along the way where we could Disagree agreeably and find through uh, those uh, disagreements with a process ways that we could sort of adjust our affairs to find that harmony that we need.
1: Who's responsible for that process, and and why why has it not, why has it ended?
2: So I think we're all responsible for that process. Law is something we do; it's not just a noun; it's a verb; it's an activity, um, and so we we all bear that uh, opportunity and burden. But having said that, it needs to be an intersocietal uh, engagement, um, and so the processes need to be developed, uh, taking account of the indigenous laws and perspectives as well as the Canadian laws and perspectives. That's the that's what the Supreme Court of Canada says that reconciliation is the fundamental purpose of Section 35.1, which is the Aboriginal Treaty Rights provisions. So we all bear that, and it needs to be borne intersocietally. But I do say that the federal government and provinces have not always. Often, even stepped up to do the work to create that uh, institutional middle ground where these things could be worked out.
1: I I was interested that 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 you sort of cite that transfer of legislative authority to the provinces has been has robbed Indigenous communities of of a great deal of agency and hope.
2: Yeah, initially there was a check and balance in the relationship way back in 1763 with the Royal Proclamation and. 1764 with the Treaty of Niagara that said when Indians, as the name was, uh, deal with uh, the crown, it has to be more with the distant authority because the local authorities have the incentives to be able to um, uh, shortchange the Indigenous peoples that are on hand in their relationships. So to take their land, to take their resources, uh, because it's just proximate to them. It's right next door. And so by putting the more distant power... Uh, in charge, that created a check and a balance. And so the local colonies, local provinces wouldn't deal with Indians, it would be the federal government to deal with Indians and lands reserved for Indians under Section 9124. But then what, what happened when that uh was promulgated? The provinces uh grew in their role, and the federal government was quickly deferential to what the provinces would say in the field, unlike in the United States where the Congress actually preempts state action. Um, and through that preemption process, you can have the state law and the First Nations law and the congressional law be harmonized uh, in that place. Not that it's utopia, south of the border, but they've actually done this piece in a much better
1: way than we've been able to do in our country. It Certainly seems like the federal government has abandoned its responsibilities. Would you yes, agree with that? or
2: Yes, they've been shy, uh, is to put it in a, in a lighter way, of taking up that authority because they don't want to risk offending powerful provincial interests, right? that If the federal government preempts um, provincial authority, then Alberta might be upset on one count and then Quebec might be upset on another count. And so to court provincial ire... Um, would be to weaken the other legislative goals that the federal government would have um, when you know we work with cooperative federalism, by and large, in our country. And so I say that Indians sort of fall between the cracks of federalism. They're, they're the sacrificial piece to create this harmonized relationship between the federal and the provincial powers. Right now in Quebec, the, the federal government has passed legislation to recognize Indigenous child welfare authority um, almost on an inherent basis and uh, in the process um, created a harmonized but nevertheless restricted provincial ability to respond there. Um, Quebec thinks that that's unconstitutional, it trenches on their powers by taking up that section 9124 space and so that's an example in the child welfare area of the kinds of things that would be even more probably fiery if if, the federal government was dealing with Indians and lands reserved for Indians and that affected provincial
1: lands or provincial resource decisions. Has the federal government lost the, the, um, the ability to constitutionally to stand up for Indigenous people?
2: No, they have not lost that ability legally and constitutionally. Um, but again, law is a verb. It's something you have to practice. We constitute ourselves with one another. If you think about it in that way, and uh, they they are not finding and following the, like it's it's possible in law to solve this challenge. Um, it's, they're not present, prevented constitutionally from doing it, but it takes more than words on a page. It takes more than a category, though they do have words on a page and they do have the category uh, to be able to deal
1: with this question. Because watching the violence and anger in Nova Scotia at this moment, it it seems like people are just, talking past each other. There there just doesn't seem to be any sense of compromise or even a willingness to hear each other.
2: Yeah, there's no doubt that those emotions are strong on all sides with some um, um, need now to be able to address that polarization that's there and uh, address the feelings of the people that are there as well. Yes, we have to deal with this legally, constitutionally, economically, but there's a sociological dimension the fellow feeling of citizens, of uh, being human beings uh, in a fragile world with uh, lots of uh, challenges that uh, we need we need to work together uh, to to deal with um, somehow turning um, that uh, recognition of anger and and frustration and rage into um, into civics into civility, right? That's that's the greater challenge that we have before us. And we can use those other tools of constitutionalism and economics uh, to to go down that path. But we need, I I wrote a book called Laws, Indigenous Ethics. We need love and truth and honesty and wisdom and respect and kindness. And and these are the sorts of values that are are lost to us in uh, day-to-day conversations. Maybe they're there in our families, maybe they're there in some church settings or, or work settings where we might feel a sense of love or truth or honesty or respect for the folks that might be in our lives. But but that doesn't just have to be limited there. We need to talk about love and have that be motivating what is going to be a part of the resolution for our uh, uh, challenges that, that we're discussing here.
1: It's hard to avoid the conclusion that racism is an important part of what's going on at st mary's bay
2: yes there's no question that that's a part of what's going on here and that does raise its own um stereotypes and and then reactions to those uh stereotypes that are not just individuated but also flow through our our law and our distribution of resources to be able to deal with these questions Um, and and yet if we can pull on those other parts of who we are as human beings to address these questions, to see see we are, you know, again, I just, uh, a lot of Anishinaabe constitutions are talking about this idea of of respect. What does it mean to be respectful in Anishinaabe when the word is which is to go easy on one another. Like we can do that as human beings. We know how to do that. We need to take analogies from other areas of life where we do that and apply that here. And it's not just high in the sky, right? Humans are wired to be cooperative beings. Yes, then we go into our, our smaller groups to facilitate what we might gain through that. But, but just because we work in smaller groups does not mean that we've lost that ability to cooperate across broader spaces as well. This is who we are as humans. Yes, we're competitive, for certain we're competitive, but it's not the only thing we are. Um, we have brains that are social, and, and, and political, like in the Arist- Aristotelian way, right? That humans are political animals and they can figure things out if we bring other values to bear.
1: In trying to understand this, and you look at the history, to try to get some grasp of how did we end up here? I get the feeling that Indigenous leaders, all the way back to the Treaty of Niagara, embraced the spirit of the law and those that they were negotiating with embraced the, the letter of the law or came to rely on the letter of the law. Does that seem like a like a start to understanding?
2: So well, that's history? certainly the,
1: the dominant themes and the way that things have worked out in their trajectories,
2: but the seeds of other possibilities were there amongst the settling population and the, the leaders at the time the treaties were signed Uh, the spirit was certainly being expressed by Indigenous peoples with the imagery and with the speeches. But you also had similar imagery and speeches coming from, um, you know, uh, Sir William Johnson, who uh, negotiated many of those early agreements, or my colleague Michael Ash wrote a book on being here to stay, where um, the governor general who was negotiating negotiating those treaties also had this spirit about him that wanted to see the goodwill be uh, more fully a part of our relations. We have dropped that out uh, to our detriment, but the seeds of it are there. We just haven't cultivated them. We haven't nourished them. We haven't given them the the heat and the light and the energy
1: that uh, that could be there. That idea that the treaties are sacred and for all time. Uh, I think you said the law is spiritualized by that <laughs> by that thinking. And I couldn't tell if you thought that that. If you were being critical or if you were saying that that might be part of a solution to to spiritualize the law.
2: It is part
1: of the solution. And
2: and by spiritualize, I don't mean that necessarily people have to agree on one conception of what the sacred is or the divine or the mysteries of the world are. But the sense is that we approach those those questions with some humility, with some care, with some um, attention to the... Um, fragility again of the state that we find ourselves in for me that's being spiritual which is to recognize that we connect with one another in ways that um, can hurt and wound uh, but also um, grow and strengthen each other and uh, and that's a mystery as to how we do that and some people turn to God and other people turn to literature, and other people turn to, you know, there's just many ways that folks deal with that. But we need that kind of attitude as well, right? Yes, for, we need economics, and we need law. But we also need this other kind of resource that humans have that considers littleness of human beings in relationship to the vastness of what expands beyond us.
1: Does that ever feel like a conflict for you? In your own in your own life, the spiritual side and, you know, the legal business?
2: Um, I would say it feels like a conflict. It feels like a bridge to a cross or a, a, a gulf to forward. Um, that is that there's lots of work to do, and it's a, it is a work in progress. Um, and there, there's pieces I have to set aside at points and say, that doesn't quite make sense here. I'm going to proceed on and then come back to that and see where that fits. Um, And I guess some people could say that's a conflict if that's just an ultimate stopping point. But, you know, we can take many different views and rotate around a question such that any one thing doesn't necessarily need to stop us. We can bob and weave. That's being free, right? I believe in freedom and we need to exercise that kind of freedom to
1: um, be dynamic in relationship to these questions. I wanted to ask you about a a word that we're all hearing a lot these days, and that's reconciliation. We, um, We hang on to it as a kind of a magic word, I think, in these situations. But you've written that it sounds nice when discussed in the abstract, but reconciliation practiced in context requires that indigenous peoples reconcile themselves to colonialism. So you don't see it as a magic word. No, it it can be
2: uh, an initial tool that helps to reveal some of the issues that stand before us, but it can also get in the way of thinking. It can get in the way of the work that we need to do. Like all words, it's just a symbol that represents other possibilities. And if we get stuck on that symbol and stop thinking, uh, then we're hooped. But if we use that as an opportunity to think, so what is the work of resurgence, reconciliation, uh, engagement, uh, revitalization, um, you know, that's that's the kind of spirit
1: that uh, that comment is made. You know, I, I was really struck by the story of your mom running away to avoid residential school, and I think you've said you learned a great deal about justice from her. I wonder if, if you could reflect just a bit on, on the journey you've been on with essentially one foot in the legal profession and the other fully understanding the hurt, but I guess also the joy of being an Indigenous man. Yeah, well, that journey
2: is a journey of beauty because I've met so many incredible people along the way. I teach wonderful young people every day. They have hopes for the future. We explore the details of the challenges that lie before them. They, of course, get frustrated, but they also make breakthroughs themselves. I've seen them go out into practice and into walks of life and and establish themselves as uh, respectful and upright and amazing uh, citizens, not just in the law, but in other things that they've done. So I think I'm fed by the goodness that is encountered with people trying to deal with this in a thoughtful way. And I, of course, see all those other things that are there, and I don't want to discount them for one moment. But I also want to say that's not the only thing that's happening. What we're searching for here is a way that Indigenous peoples can participate with others. And we've not been really able to be successful in finding that uh, as the blockades or the fires or the mobs uh, indicate. And uh, and so, yes, we um, are prevented from taking the action that we need uh, because we don't have that. Like we, we're supposed to be a democratic nation. It's about participation. The rule of law is about persuasion, not just force.
1: And we're not there. You've been very generous. Thank you so much, uh, John. It's been a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you. It's great to talk to you too. That's John Boros from the University of Victoria Faculty of Law. His call to return to the sacred values of love and kindness lines up pretty well with what the Dalai Lama has always said, Anger and hatred are signs of weakness, while compassion is a sure sign of strength. So when it's all said and done, clearly we have to see each other as human beings. And if we don't somehow learn that lesson, in the words of Mark Miller, the mild-mannered indigenous minister of services in Canada.
0: It's very dangerous uh,
1: to be on uh, the waters without a conflictual situation. It's deadly when there is one. Uh, And so that is the risk. Uh, The risk, if we don't get this right, is that people will die. I'm Peter Downey. Thanks for listening.
0: Thank you, Peter and John. I certainly learned some things and hope our listeners have as well. I have traveled along many rivers, the Hudson, Mohawk, Susquehanna, Delaware, Mississippi, Missouri, Willamette, the Fraser, the Allegheny, the Red River, the Rio Grande, the Yukon, then the Grand River and more. And every time I think of the ancestors who lived on the lands along these rivers, many years of living in harmony and in a good way. Where did the ancestors go? Where did the land go? There's an expression. We gave them an inch, they took a mile. But my grandfather said, We gave them an inch, they took it all. Meaning that we were left with land that was not as rich with abundance. What kind of life does the land have? It makes me sad when I think about the land of long ago and then what it has become today. Many parts of the land are unfit for use. The land has a spirit, too profound for many to grasp, but it's there that needs to be respected and loved. We need to heal the land and bring it out of mourning. Our Creator gave the land for all to use wisely, but many have abused the land. She hurts and it's difficult for her to breathe, but yet she still tries, cleansed by rains and good flowing rivers. Why do we need to possess to the point of irreversible harm? These words were spoken by a Haudenosaunee chief in 1742. We know our lands have now become more valuable. The white people think we do not know their value, but we know that the land is everlasting and the few goods we receive for it are soon worn out and gone. Land conflicts, Tell me that the land still has great value, but is she everlasting? As an indigenous woman, it is more about keeping the spirit of the land alive for the seventh generation not yet born. Whoever possesses the land must do so with love and respect. Please listen next week to another episode of Sacred Teachings. Ona!